There is an unseen hand to me that leads Welcome to the Unseen Hand Podcast, featuring the pulpit ministry of missionary evangelist Ronnie Brown. Listen in as Brother Ronnie shares the truth of the Bible and how God's unseen hand can lead and guide your life with each and every verse. This hand still leads me as I go. If you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to Jonah chapter number 1. Jonah chapter number 1 on Sunday mornings. We've been making our way through the book of Jonah And boy, it has been scathing, hasn't it? Up to this point, we followed Jonah in his rebellion against God. God told him to go to Nineveh and to preach unto them and to declare his good news, his his judgment, but at the same time give them lenience to repent. It was a gracious move. And yet Jonah hated the Ninevites, hated the Assyrians, and went the opposite direction. We have seen how he went down, down, down. Went to Joppa, went into a ship, down into the bottom of the ship. And God last week hurled a storm into Jonah's direction. We pick up reading in verse number 7. You would please stand out of honor and reverence to God's infallible, inerrant, and immutable word. Amen. Unchangeable. Jonah 1 and verse number 7. Now here, here is the, here's the plot now. The, the captain has gone down, found Jonah, shook him from his slumber. In verse number 6, why sleepest thou? Jonah's been shaken and he comes up, deck, up on the deck. And now we ensue in what, what's taking place there. Verse number 6, so the shipmaster came to him. Or verse number 7, excuse me. Verse number 7, and they said one to his fellow, come. Let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. And so they cast lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. They said unto him, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country and what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceeding afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I want to preach to you on this subject this morning when God turns the light on. When God turns the light on, dear Heavenly Father, we pray you'd be glorified. God, thank you for Jesus. God, we pray that our worship this morning has not been a tinkling, a tinkling brass and, a, and, a, and, and an empty symbol in your ear. Father, I pray. I pray that our songs have been sung with sincerity. I pray that the uh, the hymns of our hearts and the special singing we've lifted up to you has been honoring unto you. Father, now a part of our worship is your word. God, I pray you would give me the sense of it this morning. Help me to explain it, Father. Your word speaks for itself. It stands on its own merit. It is is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit, of joints and marrows. Let your word go out with power this morning. Let it pry into the deep, dark recesses of our own hearts and lives. May it shine a light we've tried to cover up so much. God, I pray you'd give us the gift of repentance this morning. I pray you'd give us your Holy Spirit conviction would fill this place and people would wipe the fake facade off of their faces and come to grips with our own sin. God, work in our hearts. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. One of the many sermons of C.H. Spurgeon in one of those, he tells the story of a thief. The thief had as his object of stealing the local small church. He pries his way into the church and he begins to loot what is left in there, the valuables in the church. But as he's doing so, he hears footsteps on the outside, voices on the outside of the church. He begins to panic. 
His heart racing. He runs to the back or runs to the front of the church and there looking for a place of hiding and escape. He sees a rope dangling from a vaulted ceiling where there is a place he can hide in the rafters. The man quickly grabs the, uh, grabs the uh, rope and begins to pull himself up only to realize that the rope is connected to the bell wasn't long before people from miles around knew something was up at the church. And sure enough, when the footsteps on the outside were in the inside, they went right to the location of the thief. Charles Spurgeon then commented this way, Let no man dream that he can secure secrecy for his wickedness. Every timber in the floor and the roof is ready to cry out against him. And before, and before he is aware of it, he himself will be wringing out his own dishonor. The prophet Jonah is not tiptoeing through the church, but he is hiding in a boat. And he's not trying to steal something. No, he's trying to hide from someone. He is attempting to do something that he will soon learn that has uh, uh, that no one can do, and that is flee from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, went down into the ship, went down into the sides of the ship. He kind of get the idea that Jonah is doing his best to hide from everyone. He's keeping a low profile, so to speak. He's acting incognito. But yet the Bible is clear. In Numbers 32-23, be sure your sin will find you out. If there is one thing we can learn from what happened to Jonah in these verses is that God knows how to turn the light on on our sin. When we're trying to hide. When we're doing our best to stuff it under the bed. In the back closet. In the back of the barn. He knows how to sniff it out. He knows how to send a pointing finger. He knows how to call out our sin. Sin is a devouring cancer in the lives, uh, in our lives that will devastate our hearts and minds. It will destroy our families and the relationships and it will bring disparage on the witness of God in our lives. Not to mention the untold damage of not walking with God, of knowing Him in close relationship. God is not showcasing Jonah's sin to get a laugh out of His humiliation. Imagine how humiliating this was. The light fell to Jonah. Every eye looks and asks, what did you do? How humiliating. But God's not trying to get his kicks out of humiliating Jonah. God is saving Jonah from his sin and uh, to get him back right with God. You're here this morning and God tags you. God turns the light on. Don't get mad at this preacher. Don't get mad at this Bible. Listen, there is a God in heaven who loves you enough to tell you the truth. To turn the light on on your sin. He loves you. That's why we called this series into the heart of, uh, of Jonah. Into the heart of the Lord. God shows tough love sometimes. And in that love, He will show us our wrong. Show us the path. Show us the broad road that leads to destruction, both of soul and body in this life. He loves us enough to detour us. Sometimes the only way to get us to see our sin is to shine the spotlight on it. If you are a child of God, if you own Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you may well fall into a state of rebellion. You may follow after your old nature, that old man that you ought to crucify, that you ought to tell no every morning and put him on a cross and kill him. But sometimes he becomes our best pal and leads us in a way of rebellion. If that's you this morning, 
And you're falling in your rebellious nature, running from God, following the path of sin. I'm telling you, it will not be without the chastening hand of God. Now listen, if you can live such a permissive life as to live into sin, and God not deal with you, God not chasten your heart, God not reveal, turn the light on your sin, then you may well not be a child of God because God loves His own. Hebrews tells us that He chastens His own as every godly father chases His Son. Every one of us here that know the Lord can realize God's ability to turn the light on our sin by recognizing three things that God has a way of doing. You know, God has a way of doing things in life. There are three things he does in Jonah's scene in these verses that he can do in our lives. God has a way of cornering us in our sin. In Herman Melville's classic novel, Moby Dick, there is a character called Father Mapple. Father Mapple preaches a message on Jonah in the book Moby Dick. And he described Jonah as he went down to Joppa. Listen to what he said. With slouched hat and guilty eye, skulking from God, prowling among the ships. <laughs> and that's Jonah. I can see he's got the hat pulled down and his sunglasses on, his collar up, hoping nobody sees him. The last thing he wants is anybody recognizing uh, him as he is. You know, we can tell by his actions that Jonah is trying to keep a low profile. He's incognito. He don't want anybody to see him. He don't want anybody to know him. But all that's about to change. He may have been so unnoticeable that very few may have realized he was down in the bottom of that boat. But notice, God can corner us in our sin. Notice, first of all, I want you to see an unusual means. Now, I know, uh, I'm sure that these sailors had been through some storms before. If they're sailors, if you've been on the ocean any time at all, then you've experienced a storm or two. And, uh, but there was something about this tempest this situation, this weather condition that had to touch, that had the touch of the divine in it. These sailors realized something more is going on than just a storm. Everything they tried, every way they trimmed the sails, it seems it would blow the other way. Every attempt to paddle out of the storm only brought them deeper into the storm. No, there was something of the divine in this storm. And notice their suggestion in verse number 7. And they said, everyone to his fellow, come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. And notice the suggestion of casting lots. Lots are very, what they were doing was using lots. Lots are different shapes. Uh, it, it, it references, the word references pebbles. Different shapes and different materials that are often associated with God's will. You might think of uh, Yahtzee and putting the, uh, the, the, the dice into a little cup and shaking it up and, and throwing it on the table and taking the numbers from that. That would be the picture of this casting of light. Small pebbles uh, that were to make a process of elimination to discern God, God's will. You know, this was a practice not only among the pagans but the Jews as well. The high priest of Israelites, he wore underneath the breastplate with all the stones something called the Urim and the Thummim. It was a white, from what we understand, a white rock and a black rock. And those were placed into a bag in order to make decisions to discern the will of God. Should I go right or should I go left? Shake the bag and put the things down. Pull out the stone. Yes is a white. No is a black. They would make decisions based upon these stones. But, but as best we know, these were uh, colored stones that determined the will of God. There are some instances of lots being used in the Bible to make godly decisions, both in the Old Testament and New. I won't go into these different ones, but there are instances where lots are being used. 
Now, before you break out the dice, everybody's looking for dice. Amen. What's going to happen in, at Bethany Baptist? Roll it out. What's going to happen with this thing going on in my life? Before you break out the dice on Sunday night trying to settle a family dispute over who ate the last little bit of ice cream, amen, before you break out the dice, I want you to understand something, that all of this lot casting was done prior to the revealed Word of God. We don't need dice. We don't need lots. We don't draw straws to find the will of God for our lives. We have it in this book. That's why we are people of this book. You want wisdom? Open this book. You want understanding? Read this book. Uh, Meditate on this book. God gives us wisdom through that. But in this time in Jonah, they did so by these lots. It's interesting to note from history. I wanted to keep this out, but I can't resist George Whitfield, in his ministry there in England, was a powerful preacher. And the church was debating on what to do with George Whitfield. Should he stay in England and continue that great awakening going on, that revival going on in England? Or should he go to the new world? The church thought it right to get together and to cast lots to see what would happen with George Whitfield. And the lot fell for George Whitfield to stay in England. George Whitfield ignored it, went to America, and the first great awakening was incited, was prolonged by George Whitfield. You see, I don't believe that casting lots is what we need to do in our day, in our day and time. But the thought was then that they would take the lot, and, they, and that the thought was that God was powerful enough whether pagan God or Jehovah God was powerful enough to cause the right lot to fall on the right decision, to make the decision with divine insight from these lots. Uh, To them, the lot was not a case of random luck, but a revealed Lord. Now, we may not cast lots today, but do you believe that God is able to seemingly at random and statistically impossible find means to point the finger at us? No, we may not cast lots to try to find out what your sin is or who's the guilty party in this church. But God has a way. Through seemingly undeniable circumstances to reveal our sin. To point the finger at us. Uh, believe, listen, believe that God, uh, you know, you, you may not believe. You, you, you may not, you could not possibly imagine the odds of your wife's best friend driving down the highway as you take the motel key and place it in the door with a strange woman behind you. But God, and let the lot fall on you. You may think it statistically unimaginable that the accountant down at work could stumble across the little bit of money that you've been embezzling from the company and chase it to its full end and reveal you as a thief. You may think it unimaginable That the deacon's wife was shopping at the mall the same day that you played hooky from school, disobeyed your mom and dad, and went to rendezvous with a boyfriend down at the mall. What are the odds? I've seen it a thousand times. God has a way of turning the dice. God has a way of revealing your sin. Hey, listen, if you're playing with sin right now and you've been duped in believing that I'm getting away with it, I've got away with it for years. Be sure your sin will find you out. He has a way of turning the dice. Do you think the Lord of heaven can arrange these things? You better believe it. God's sovereign power can both bless and bust you. 
Second of all, not only an unusual means, but an undeniable meaning. In verse number 7, Jonah chapter 1, verse number 7, And they come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. The problem of this story is that we know it. The problem of this story is that you know who the lot falls to. You've heard it since you were uh, in Sunday school. We know who the guilty party is. But I want you to imagine for a moment in this scene that you don't know who it is. The, the wild storm is so unusual that you know something's going on behind the scenes. Everybody's on the deck now. Even the quiet recluse guy that was down in the hold somehow sleeping. Everyone is not, everyone is gripped in fear. Everyone is unsure. I remember a story of a man. A story of a man who played a joke on his wealthy friends. He sent all of them a note. No return address, no identification of who sent the note. The note read only this. All has been revealed. Leave town immediately. All five of his friends left town within 24 hours. (laughs) We all got something to hide, don't we? We all have skeletons. We all have sins. Can you imagine everybody's knees shaking on the boat? Is it me? Has my sin finally caught up on me? Is it my situation? All these men had sinned, but the light falls on... uh, but But as the light fell, one by one, people were excluded, and it became clear who the culprit was. Proverbs 28, 13. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh shall have mercy. There is very much the idea in Scripture that whatever we cover, that whatever we uncover, God will cover with His mercy and grace. But when we try to cover, God has a way of uncovering. He has a way in His sovereign ability and power of exposing our sin, of singling us out and pointing the finger at us, of turning the light on so that everybody plainly sees. Truth be known, most of the time, although the scars will run deep and reputations will be permanently tarnished, that's what will take us from uh, what, that's what will take us to crying out in repentance toward God and keep us from covering our sin no longer. Listen, go back and find the stories of people in ministry who've been broken and publicly shown to be frauds, to be adulterers, to be drug abusers. Oftentimes you'll find somebody that was broken and and permanently permanently removed from the public stage. But you'll find a person that is stronger, humble. You'll find someone that has been rescued. That's what we find that God is doing in the life of Jonah. Concerning, He can corner us in our sins. He can use unusual methods. But the end result is the same. God knows how to single you out. God knows how to single me out. He's done it time and again. He'll do it in your life as well. Notice second of all, not only God has a way of cornering us in our sin, but also God has a way of confronting us in our sin. From the beginnings of sin... From the beginning, sin is a deception. Sin is a delusion. When the serpent came to Eve, he told her, you shall not surely die. The deception was all. The trickery was about. You see, when we arrive at a place of sin and rebellion against God, internally, our inner lawyer comes out and begins to make a, make a careful uh, uh, argument for our right to sin. Do you have an inner lawyer? Do you have someone that comes out to your defense? Well, they don't know the whole story. Well, God, you know my situation. Well, God, 
you know how my husband is. Well, God, you know how they are at work. Our inner lawyer steps forward uh, to, and he be, brings such a convincing argument that we begin to justify our sin. We begin to believe that although everyone, for everyone else it is wrong, but we're the exception to the rule. We're some kind of special case. Our circumstances are both are such that God, well, God turns a blind eye to us. He, he knows. After all I do for God, after all I give, surely God would turn a blind eye to my sin. But like the bucket of cold water on a sleeping victim when it is least expected, there is a rude awakening. This is Jonah. Jonah is being confronted on the deck of this sinking ship of his sin. Notice, first of all, we see an aggressive request. On the deck, on the windswept deck, as the stinging rain pelts the faces of the passengers and crew, the lightning of the sky was reflected in the eyes of all that were on there as they glared at Jonah. What did you do? Look at verse number six. And they said to him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whoso, or for uh, whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation? Whence comest thou? What is thy country? What is uh, what are thy people? Question after question, he's pelted, he's cornered. He is confronted with his sin. Like Cain, Achan, Samson, David, God has seen fit to confront them in their sin red-handed. Following the last lot, a barrage of questions flew at Jonah. These questions must have been like a jolt to Jonah because they penetrated to the real heart of the matter. It's amazing, the insightful question. You know, they didn't ask, what did you do? What's your occupation? What do you do for a living? Not necessarily, what have you done to cause this? What's your occupation? Boy, that, that should have been a knife to Jonah's heart. I'm a prophet is the right answer. I'm one that God called to bring a message uh, from His very lips. I'm the one called to go where God sins. Jonah was a prophet. A prophet is supposed to do prophesying somewhere. Not hiding in the bottom of a boat. What have you come? Where have you come from? Oh, the right answer is Israel. The land of God's blessing. The land of my lineage, the the blessed land of God's protection, of God's provision that He jealously, that He jealously looks upon. What's your nationality? Oh, oh, I'm a Jew. I am of the lineage of Abraham, that one that followed God out of Ur of the Chaldees. I'm the one that is to be a light in this darkened world for Jehovah. And I'm sitting in the bottom of a boat. You couldn't ask more cutting questions of Jonah. What are you doing? Where are you from? Who are you? You see, he was one of God's chosen people. God knew what Jonah needed to hear to wake him up. To stir the fig leaf covering he's placed over himself. To take the lawyer and shove a rag in his mouth. God knows how to shut him up. God knows how to ask the right questions. You see, God knew how to approach Jonah. It has been implied many times as I have preached through these nearly 15 years of ministry that it seems like I read people's email. That I know their text messages. Some of you saying, Brother Ronnie, have you got bugs planted in my house? I assure you, I don't. I wish I did. I'd have better stuff. (laughs) But I don't. I don't read your mail. I don't creep on your Facebook. I don't look up your Twitter. God has a way. I've seen it time and time again. I know what I'm preaching. Verse by verse by verse by verse. I come into the building and I see the collection of hearers and I'm in awe of what I'm preaching this day to that person. To all of us, to myself. 
but I cannot believe who has just walked in. They're going to think. They're going to think I knew they were coming and pick the text just for where they are. That's just the way the lot falls. That's just the way that this aggressive request goes out towards those. God has divined the right question, the right statement, the right anger to elicit from Jonah a mark, a statement of repentance, a heart that is broken. Listen, there is a God in heaven who knows exactly what you need to hear. Notice second of all, not only an aggressive request, but an arrogant response. I wonder, could the whole fish thing been avoided right here? It could have been avoided. Now listen, I, I don't lie. I want you to understand something. I hate Texting in a conversation other than facts. Get milk, get eggs, you know, uh, go to the store, pick up Grayson. I, I like that kind of texting. I've known people to sit there and have these long conversations with each other, and the text is like this long on that small of a phone. You've got to scroll, scroll 15 times to see the whole statement. Listen, the problem with that is, is that there's no face, there's no voice inflection. To understand exactly what that person is saying. You know the same thing is true with the Bible. Notice verse number, notice verse number 9. And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew. And fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which made the sea and the dry land. There's this dispute over this verse. What is the tone of this verse? Many people, including close friends of mine, will see... This as the moment of, jo of Jonah's breaking. I am a Hebrew. And I fear the God of the heaven. Who made the sea. Made all this. I fear Him. They see this as Jonah's first cracking. In repentance. I don't. I don't. As a matter of fact. I think it's an arrogant response to these men. I think, I think although we could see it in both ways, it lends itself uh, to being uh, not, a, uh, not a moment of confession, but a moment of arrogance. Everything that Jonah said was theologically true. The most biblical, astute person on the boat was undeniably Jonah. Jonah could quote the verses. Jonah could give you the entire Pentateuch on that deck. The other guy sitting there couldn't give you a word of God's sacred word. But the reality is, is that the pagans on the boat were more sensitive toward God than he. I hear these words, uh, I hear these words in verse number 9 as the words of the Pharisee in Luke. You remember the, the story of the Pharisee? Oh Lord... I'm glad that I live right, not like this publican over here. I'm glad that I tithe and I give mint and coming, that I'm, I'm not a dog like this. Like this. To me, that's what, his, that's what his statement says. I am a Hebrew. I'm not a pagan like you. You guys can call to your gods, your pagan gods, all you want. You're wasting your breath. There is one God, it's Jehovah in heaven, and I fear Him. That's God, I fear the God of heaven when it's not reflected in his life at all. If anybody fears the God of heaven it's that, at that moment, it's the sailors on the boat, not Jonah. No, and Jonah, in the following verses, he's suicidal. Well, God's found me out. I, I guess you just throw me overboard because I'm not saying a word. I'm not, if I go to the bottom of the sea and I die, great. Nineveh will be destroyed in 40 days. I don't care. That was how obtuse, rebellious, and stalwart he was in his conviction of his own righteousness. I, I see this as an arrogant response. I see this as Jonah giving all the theological flowering and yet he doesn't follow his own words. 
Like the one that stood in the, in the temple. Listen, Jonah will prove that he would rather die and go down the sea than admit his guilt. Oh, don't worry. God's got worse than the bottom of the sea for you, Jonah. You know, they say that when a lion is backed into a corner is when they'll fight the fiercest. That is where Jonah is. God is backing him into a corner, confronting him with his sins, and all the excuses in the world are coming out. Is that you this morning? You see, truth be known, during the message today, your inner lawyer has come out. The permissive Pharisee who has long phylacteries and, and who knows all of these obfuscations of sin in the Bible and in literature and, and this preacher said that well this preacher said this well that preacher said that and you've got your you've got your lawyer Pharisee sitting here and he says this and he says that and he's, he's been offering his excuses I'm telling you you look as foolish you look as foolish as Jonah pontificating to these sailors while the boat is about to sink and take him with him your inner lawyer is working overtime, excusing your sin, reading your religious remarks and theological double talk. Rest assured, your sin is being confronted. Whether you respond now or whether you respond in the belly of a whale, it's up to you. But here is God cornering you and confronting you in your sin. Last of all, not only do we see God has a way of cornering us in our sin. God has a way of confronting us in our sin. God has a way of condemning us in our sin. You know, you ever heard of Sharia law? That's on the, that's on the news quite often, Sharia law. As Muslim populations grow in America, and as Christianity wanes, and a new, uh, a new uh, uh, secular ethic uh, uh, grows like a cancer across our nation, more and more communities are becoming predominantly Muslim. And their insistence is that they vote in a what's called Sharia law. Sharia law is part of the ideology of Islam. Islam cannot stand on its own as a religion. It's got to be not only a religion coupled with a government. Its government has to be the strong arm of its religion. The government will deal with blasphemy by, by, by execution. The government will deal with wayward women according to the law of Sharia and humiliate them, kill them. And, 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 and You see what I'm saying? Sharia law. God's law is not the same. You know, a lot of people talk about, you know, uh, I wish God, you know, more of, of God ruling in our nation and this and that. And I do. I, 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 pro, I plead for righteousness. I, pre, I plead for godliness among our leaders. I don't want the national religion to be Christianity. You know why? Because it will be led by fallen foolish men who will naturally plunder people in the name of religion. The only time there needs to be a national religion is when Jesus comes and He's the head of it. That way we'll know we'll real get justice. But to make my point clear, is that God doesn't need a Sharia type law. God has a way. You know, adultery more and more is becoming not outlawed. You know, used to there were blue laws on the books. You committed adultery. It was a crime punishable in a court of law. Now that's falling away. But God has a way. God has a way of righting injustice. God has a way of cornering us and not only confronting us, but condemning us. He doesn't need a religious court to do that. Notice, first of all, I want you to see a devastating accusation. Verse number 10, Then, then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he, he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. To me, Jonah may have been quite a bit evasive in his response. He may be cover, uh, clothing himself in a theological mask, but for all intents and purposes, the jig is up. Whatever, whatever Jonah says doesn't really matter. The lot's already fallen. God's already spoken. 
He may give his platitudes and his theological shenanigans, but the truth can't be avoided. He's the guilty party. The jig is up. Jonah's the reason for the storm. The winds and the waves that at, uh, uh, that at any moment could cause the ship to fall apart are because of this Jewish fugitive. Like one preacher said, I love this. Jonah's God was the creator of the storm, but Jonah's rebellion had been the cause of it. Jonah's sin was the real reason they were on the verge of drowning. You know, we may be running uh, from, from, uh, from God in our sin. We may put up all the excuses in the world to try to escape from it. But God knows how to bring condemnation to our doorstep. God knows your address. God can read your title clear. It doesn't matter the arguments. It doesn't matter what you, what you put up theologically. When your wife finds out you're having an affair, the jig is up. Hey, when your mom and dad find out you've been popping pills, the jig is up. When you've been, wife, well, let's make even the odds, wife, when you've been going behind your husband's back, the jig is up. They don't care. I don't care what excuses. I don't care what, uh, what, oh, I got so much baggage. You don't know my parents. Everything is everybody else's fault. Nobody wants to take responsibility for themselves. You can reflect, you can throw it back on the accuser, but Needless to say, you're the guilty party. And that's the way it was with Jonah. Jonah was the guilty one. The blame lay strictly at his doorstep. You may blame God for all that's going on in your life. You may blame God for the boat capsizing and take no responsibility for your own actions. You can be a pipsqueak and, and say, well, it's everybody else's fault. It's not my fault. It's not. You can, or you can own up to your sin, man up and repent of your sin. And admit, oh God, I'm the man. Oh God, I'm the one that sinned. It's me and me only have I done this thing. To be sure, not every trial, not every storm has its roots in sin. But many times it is, it is and, the only, uh, and, the only, and only you know the difference. In that moment, it is not the time to play theological tiptoe through the tulips. It's not time to dodge the question and tell only the half of the truth. It is time to come clean with God. I'm telling you what, there is a fish swimming underneath this boat, chomping at the bit, no pun intended, to get Jonah. And it all could have been avoided had he made it right on that day, in that hour, and got right with God. Instead of running to that inner lawyer. Instead of trying to find excuses and dodging what is obvious to everybody else. Devastating accusation, but also a dramatic awareness. Notice in verse number 10, it says that the men were exceedingly afraid. These are pagans now. They worship false gods, and yet they're exceedingly afraid. The phrase indicates that they were scared to death. I can see them as Jonah gives his response and they begin to turn white as a sheet. You see, the sailors up to this point have been afraid of the storm. But they're not now. They're afraid of the God above the storm that sent the storm. If God will do this to one of His own servants, what will He do with If God will judge one of His own this way, what will He do with me? Who does not believe in Him. Who lives life carefree. Anything I want to do, I'll do it. It put, so to speak, the fear of God in these men. I believe this revelation came... Oh, and notice He said that in verse number 10 that, that Jonah had told them that he had fled from the presence of the Lord. I believe this revelation comes between the white places, between 9 and 10. I just don't see where anywhere else it it fills in. Because if it had been earlier, everybody would have known. It's Jonah's fault. He told us. He was running from God. Here's his God catching up with him. They wouldn't have cast lots. They would have wrung his neck then. No, I believe this is something forthcoming. 
I believe they, they did some, uh, some debating, arm-twisting on Jonah, and he finally spilled the beans, so to speak. He, he revealed that he's running from God. And here we find Jonah giving, uh, t- giving them insight. Jonah says that he fears God of heaven, but the only people practicing like they fear God are these sailors. Although Jonah was to preach and witness to Nineveh, he is unwittingly preaching a message to these sailors. You know, if one of God's own rebels him, and he can't get away with him, what can I do? Many times, to an onlooking world, the most instructive aspects of our Christian lives is not how religiously faultless and good we can portray ourselves, but how broken and how needy and how helpless we are. You're not going to impress the world with your piety. I don't care how big your King James Bible is. I don't care how long your tie or dress is. Your piety is not going to impress a lost and dying world. It's not going to give an aroma of fragrance that says, oh, I want what you have. The truth of the matter is, it is your brokenness. A brokenness that Jonah did not reveal. But in the smallest way, these men became fearful of the God of heaven because of what God was doing to His servant. Listen, your vulnerability and your need of God. Many of you, for years in this church, I've never seen a genuine need for God. You've got it all lined out. You're doctrinally straight. You've got everything in a row. You ain't got no problems whatsoever. Since the day you were born again, you've walked straight as an arrow. You walk right, talk right, spit right. I'm telling you, you're not real. You're a phony. You're a phony. If there's anything I learned in this Christian life, the first two weeks might have been that way. The third week, I got crazy. And the fourth week. And the fifth week. And the next month. And the next year. I got busted over the head. I got broken beyond recognition. Your vulnerability, your brokenness, your need for God. Your thirst for the God of heaven. You have the peace and the forgiveness that you know. That you weep over that God's been so good to you. That is the salt that draws the world to drink from Jesus. Not your piety. Not how straight you walk. Not how good you think you are. Carrie and I were just talking about the other day. The Duggars. You know the Duggars of TV fame? 18 and counting or 27 or 35. I, I, remember, I can't remember the number. You know, you know how the, the Duggars have bas- basically been dismantled on television. Whatever, whatever uh, on the newspapers and the, they steal on the tabloids have Duggars pitching. And, 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 you know, we look at that and we, and we think about how ruining that testimony is. They, they claim to be such good Christians. They claim to be sick. And, and I know not every one of them are the same. I know I, I'm, not, I'm not pointing in that direction. You think about Josh Duggar. Josh Duggar, I mean, he was... Found as a as a, a minor messing with little kids, it was closed, but now it was open, made open. He had an uh, he had an affair. He went to that Ashley Madison. You remember that whole thing a couple years about a year ago? Ashley Madison. He went online and he he was trying to orchestrate an affair with someone else behind the scenes. Ashley Madison said, "Yes, sir, we can do that. We'll put you in our database." Josh Duggar probably pillowed his head at night thinking. Name, email, and address are all neatly tucked away. Down in the little ones and zeros, deep down in the bottom of a back computer room somewhere. So small, you can't even see it with the naked eye. He pillowed his head at night thinking, I'm okay. Nobody knows. The best time for him to fess up was when he got... when. When it came out about messing with those kids, you should have said, I'm not only that, I've done this and I'm I, No. 
I'll keep playing the game. I'll keep playing the game. Nobody will know. They have such great security there at, at, at Ashley Madison. Nobody will. They told me nobody will ever know. No footprints. And you know as well as I do that sin is a lie. It's a deception. And it'll come out. Mark my words. It'll come out. It did for Josh Duggar. It's done it in countless preachers' lives. People of notoriety. And don't think you're above God doing it to you. Don't just think, well, they all, God only does that to high-profile people, you know. How do we sing it? How does that song go? It is no secret what God can do. What He's done for others, He'll do to you. If God's made their sin, brought it to light from the depths of the darkest places on the internet, He can do it in your life. Let's all stand to our feet as we come to a song of invitation. When God turns the light on, is this a wake-up call? Has God taken His Word and shined a light in your direction? Believe you me, you don't want to be Jonah. You don't want to be Jonah sitting on that boat and everybody looking at you and trying to offer some flim-flam excuse. Robe yourself in piety because God sees right through you. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. God, I pray that you'd speak to hearts. God, God, this message was spoken to me first. God, you know, you know the struggles of my life. You know the areas of temptation that draw me. Oh God, give grace. God, I repent, I turn. God, I don't want the belly of a fish. Oh God. God, spare me the depths of the sea. God, spare these people. God, we pray repentance, the gift of repentance, the conviction of the Holy Spirit would overtake these people. And me included. God, draw us to make things right with you before it's too late. God, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Kevin, what's on? 336, Jesus, I come. Why don't you come to Him? Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sin. That sin you're playing in. That sin you're toying with. Jesus died for you. You come. Repent. Believe. Trust Him as Lord and Savior. Come. I'm trusting to the unseen hand. We hope and pray that today's episode of the Unseen Hand podcast has been a help and blessing to you. For more information such as other podcasts, ministry helps, blog posts, previous sermons, or how to contact Brother Brown directly, just go to RonnieBrown.net. Join us next time for another message from Brother Ronnie on the Unseen Hand podcast. Until then, may God's unseen hand gently guide you on your journey home. The Unseen Hand.